Good morning, Bethel. Um, just for you parents, just so you know, maybe you figured it out, but we're back on the normal school year schedule, so we've got um, children's church that's um, going on for kids, not just through, it's a little bit different in the summer, I think we end at kindergarten, but it goes up through third grade now. So just so you know, we're back on the normal school year schedule. Um, one other, well, it's kind of a single announcement with two parts. Uh, the book of the month for this and next month, um, we kind of do book of two months, but that sounds weird, so it's still the book of the month, um, is this book right here called Christian Beliefs, 20, basic, 20 Basics Every Christian Should Know by Wayne Grudem. And um, there's a couple reasons why we're doing this book. Um, well, one main reason, that it goes along well with the upcoming working through the doctrinal statement um, process that we're involved in. So the elders right now are working through the draft, and it may take us a little longer than um, maybe we originally anticipated. That's okay, because we want to walk through it well, and then we'll bring that draft to all of you and, and walk through it as well, and there'll be plenty of time to, to dialogue through it. Um, so anyway, this is a good way for all of us to just really wrestle with um, some good, meaty, healthy doctrine. So I could have said that the, the book of the month is going to be Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem. It's like 1,300 pages. Okay, so you probably wouldn't make it through that. Um, he also put together a smaller version, which I think is called Bible Doctrine, and it's like half the size, still like 600 pages almost. So this is only 140, okay? So very accessible um, and really helpful and clear. And also, what we're going to do is the men on Friday mornings, starting on the 14th, 6 to 7 a.m., the 6.12 at 6, um, the men's group is going to be going through this, this book a chapter at a time. Um, so it'll probably actually take us fall and spring, because we're going to just take little, little bits of time, each of the 20. So 10 in the fall, 10 in the spring. So any of you men that are able, if your commute allows it, um, set that alarm and join us down by the, by the uh, kitchen. Um, 6 a.m. on Friday mornings beginning September 14th. And so you can pick up one of these in the uh, bookstore uh, and be ready to go for the 14th. Okay. Um, and by the way, Wayne Grudem, I th one of the things that people so appreciated, most appreciated about his systematic theology, maybe when you hear systematic theology, you go, ugh, who would ever want to read that unless you have insomnia or something? Well, that's terrible and a ploy of the devil to think that way about doctrine and for people to write doctrine that's boring because doctrine has to do with God and God's not boring. But anyway, people have commented to him in the preface. He says, what I hear most frequently is, thank you for writing a theology book that I can understand. And this book is helping my Christian life. Okay? So that's the kind of doctrine that's accessible. It's actually one of my seminary professors. Um, he was actually my advisor. Um, and really humble, sincere man, and uh, started to read this, and it's excellent, very accessible, good stuff. So encourage you all to take advantage of that. Okay, we're going to dive in here, Luke chapter 15. Uh, if you're using the Pew Bible, if you don't have a Bible with you, you're welcome to pick one up afterwards at the Welcome Center. If you're visiting, don't have a Bible, um, love to give you one. But there are some in the pew in front of you, and so the text for this morning is found on page 1042. 
Luke 15, we're going to be looking at verses 1 to 10 this morning. While you're turning there, just think with me. Let me ask some questions. And I want you to think about your view of God. Okay, do you, what, what do you think of when you think of the character of God? And not the Sunday school answers, but really, what's your view? Do you think that God is, you know, maybe easily irritated, maybe cranky, maybe a little bit capricious, maybe he has kind of a hair trigger temper? Do you think that maybe, do you ever think this? Do you ever think that maybe he must gain some kind of pleasure from making like life difficult for you? Does that ever cross the radar screen of your mind and heart? When you suffer, what's your view of the character of God? Maybe particularly, that might be a good window. Do you think God is aloof? Do you think he's stoic? Do you think he's impatient, kind of tapping his toe at us pathetically, you know, slow-to-learn people? Do you think he's just waiting for you to step out of line? Do you think he loves... How about this question? Do you think he disciplines those he loves, or do you think he just loves to discipline? Do you think God is happy? Joyful? Is that, is that ever... Would that... Would that come in the first maybe, you know, 10 descriptors, if you were asked? Do you have categories for that? A happy God? Joyful God? Where do, you, where do you think the source of joy in this universe is? Do you remember that parable back in Matthew 25 where there was a parable of the talents and one guy's five and the other one two and the other one one? Remember how for the, for the one who took his five and made five more and the two and made two more, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. You ever notice that's a command that's coming? Are you looking forward to obeying that command? What does that command say about the character of the master? Even though the guy with the one who buried it in the ground said, Oh, no, you're a hard master. You're a hard man. I know it. And that changed everything. What do you think it means in Nehemiah 8 when it says the joy of the Lord is your strength? What does that mean? The Lord's joy is your strength. Do you, do you ever view God as joyful? Do you find yourself with an inability to accept? I know this is hard. Beth and I talk about this. This is hard to believe. Is it hard to, to accept and believe God's personal love and acceptance of you, even joy over you, if you're in Christ? Especially when you're struggling with sin or when you're going through a trial, it's really hard to believe that. Or more often than not, maybe we think that God barely puts up with us rather than welcomes us and accepts us. Okay? So Jesus actually in Luke 15 aims to change that. <laughs> if you resonate with any of those things, Jesus aims here to change that. And this, if you've been with us, is probably a very welcome shift. Okay? Um, because the last couple chapters, if you've been here, have been sober, 
and sobering. Okay, dead serious warnings, blood earnest exhortations to count the cost and follow Jesus wholeheartedly. And I, we have to be careful. Hopefully we've taken pains over the last several weeks to not mute or soft pedal any of that. So there was this serious discipleship focus last week. You know, you cannot be my disciple because of if, if you don't do this and this and this, okay? Well, that section at the end of chapter 14 ended with, hope you're, you're there in your Bibles now. Look at it there. We're going to actually start reading in verse 34 of chapter 14. Because there's an interesting connection, important connection we need to see. Okay? So let's pray and then we'll dive in. Father, you are not a God that desires to remain hidden. You are not stingy about giving, giving us yourself, revealing your character, your glory, your nature, your person. Thank you for how you have revealed yourself over and over again in the creation, in your word, in history, through your mighty acts, and then ultimately in your Son. And we thank you that we can fix our eyes on him this morning and listen to him this morning. Your very words breathed out. Would you please give us ears to hear and eyes to see you for who you truly are and soft, repentant, receptive, humble hearts to receive the really good news that we find in these verses. So please, by your Spirit, do that work of unstopping ears and, and taking away the blinders and cutting away the deadness in our hearts so that we can receive what you have to say to us this morning. We thank you that you want to speak these good words to us. We're not here by accident. So I pray that you would raise our expectation and our hunger and our desire to hear from you and to see you and to be changed by you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so that last section of chapter 4 ended with, therefore salt is good, but even if salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It's useless either for the soil, the manure pile, it's thrown out. In other words, salt that isn't salty isn't salt. It's worthless. What are you going to do? Salt, salt? No, you throw it out. So a disciple is, is a disciple, or he's not a disciple. So he closes with these Maybe strange, like, where did these come from? Words at the end of verse 35. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then, verse 15, or chapter 15, verse 1, now all the tax collectors and the sinners, did you ever notice that all? That, that should be like an exclamation point. All the tax collectors and sinners. In other words, lots and lots of them, okay? Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near Jesus to NAS, unfortunately, says, listen to him. If you have an ESV, it gets it right as far as helping you see the connection. To hear him, right? Is that what your ESV says? It's the same verb as the one in 35. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, who's hearing? 
Who's coming near to hear? It's the tax collectors and the sinners who are coming near to Jesus to hear him. So what? Well, that's actually interesting at a couple levels. First, most obvious, they're the ones who have ears to hear. The Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders, the teachers, of all people, they ought to be listening and have ears to hear. Oddly enough, they're the ones that are sticking their fingers in the ears when Jesus is speaking. And then it's these unsavory, immoral folks, the unclean, the outcasts, the opportunists. Have you ever been used by or coerced by or someone you love has been, you know, treated that way by some opportunist? What do you want to do with people like that? Okay? You can see that these are despicable people. And that riffraff, they're the ones coming to hear Jesus. They're the ones that have ears to hear. The tax collectors and the sinners. Okay? Tax collectors were despised. They had this reputation. They were notorious for being honest. They were greedy and opportunistic. They basically sold, them, sold their souls for the sake of making a living. They're fleecing the poor. Okay? So the Ro- Rome needs to collect taxes. You sell out. And you get to be one of the ones to collect taxes. you got to give Rome so much. Anything you collect over and above that, it's yours. So you're going you're gonna to be a thug. You're going to be coercive. You're going to be a jerk. And you're going to fleece people to line your pockets. These were not, you know, like the favorite people in the first century. So think of people with a similar re- reputation in our day and age. Okay, maybe some trial lawyers of a certain stereotype, you know. In our day and age, car salesmen, if you are any of these things, well, hopefully you're not some of these things, but um, not everybody, I know, okay. Nightclub owners and title loan sharks and used appliance salesmen from New Jersey, you know, and politicians, many of them. Here's the deal. People you automatically view with suspicion. You're You're on high alert. Why? Because they've got a reputation, these sinners, okay? They can't be included in among the righteous because they're not faithful to the covenant. They're outside. They're lawbreakers, okay? But there's another actually deeper connection. It's an echo, and it's, allu- it's an illusion if you know your Bible, if you know the Old Testament, okay? Part, we read from Ezekiel. There's an, another reason you should read Ezekiel because back in chapter 12, listen to this. Son of man, you live in the midst of the rebellious house. Israel's a rebellious, idolatrous house. Okay? Who have eyes to see, but do not see. Ears to hear, but do not hear. For they are a rebellious house. The rebellion is that they're idolatrous. Okay? And elsewhere, Psalm 115, Psalm 135, through Isaiah... What happens is people who are idolatrous that bow down and worship idols, they become like what they admire. They become like what they worship. So if you are worshiping and bowing down to a block of wood or the almighty dollar or whatever, don't think we're too sophisticated for idolatry. It just looks different, okay? If If we bow down, we become like what we admire. And sorry, blocks of wood can't see, even though they might have eyes painted on. They can't hear, even though they might have ears carved in. So you become like what you admire. You have eyes, but you can't see. You have ears, but you can't hear. So what is Jesus saying here? He who has ears, let him hear. Pharisees, scribes, isn't it funny? You're the rebels. You're the idolatrous rebels. Remember earlier, they're rapacious. They're greedy. They're worshiping money. 
they can't hear Jesus. And the rebels, like the people you would think would never want to follow Jesus, they're the ones that their ears are open and they've got ears to hear. They're listening. So there's this crazy reversal. And remember, we've seen lots of reversals in the book of Luke. So it's the pagans, the sinners who are listening and they can hear. And this is just such a wonderful setup. If we could just locate this in the big story of the Bible, what's the gospel say? God justifies the ungodly. (laughs) Okay? There aren't any righteous. No, not one. So what a great setup. The good news is only for those who know that they're sick, who know that they're lost, who know that they're unrighteous. But rather than rejoicing that there's hope and there's good news for them and for others, the Pharisees, verse 2, they're grumbling over the grace that Jesus is bringing. Look at verse 2. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners. You can hear, it with, you can hear the contempt, can't you? This one, this man receives sinners and eats with them. It's another way of saying he's a glutton and a drunkard. He does this kind of stuff all the time. Joel Green put it like this, Jesus behaves toward these outsiders, these unclean, contemptible persons of ignoble status, as though they were acceptable, as though they were his own kin. Scandalous, isn't it? So you can see why, you can see how the Pharisees are actually questioning Jesus' status. Who are you? Glutton and drunkard, receiving sinners, eating with them. But why did Jesus come? (laughs) He came to seek and save the lost. So Jesus is actually showing that his behavior is completely in keeping with the character of God and the divine economy of grace. Okay, his behavior doesn't call into question his identity, his status as the Messiah. It actually confirms it. You see that? So Jesus is receiving, he's eating, he's going to the casino. He's eating with the casino owners and the used car salesmen that want to fleece you. Now, obviously, these people were coming to him, just like the the lost son actually came back. The father didn't, you know, it's not like unconditional positive regard. Okay, there's repentance. But these people were coming. So Jesus is welcoming them. You can see how they could just think, oh, this is like violation of Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk the counsel of the wicked. Stand in the way of sinners. What are you doing that for? You've got no regard for the purity of the people of God. You've got no respect for the separation that the people of God are, have, are supposed to have, that God requires this, this cleanness and separation. Good grief. If we follow him, how are we ever going to know who's in and who's out? So they're annoyed. They grumble. They're grumbling over grace, which might sound familiar. Another Old Testament illusion. You scratch the New Testament, you start smelling Old Testament. (laughs) Okay? So grumbling over grace, anybody thinking of anything? Does that sound familiar? There's a lot of examples of Israel in the wilderness, right? Exodus 16, others. Think about what's going on, big picture there. What were they doing that they were grumbling over the provision of manna and other things that they wanted. They didn't like the way God was accomplishing his redemption. 
And so they fail to recognize and trust his provision and his presence with them. No, he's with you. He's going to take care of you. Look at all this grace. Tastes like honey. He didn't have to make it taste like honey. But they didn't like the way he was doing it. And here, same thing. The Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost, including tax collectors and sinners, and they don't like the way he's accomplishing redemption. Same pattern. Look back at Luke 5. Do you remember that big reception and the Pharisees and scribes are grumbling? Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? And he says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This same language, patterns, just very parallel. In 19, we'll get there in a little while at some point, <laughs> Lord willing. Um, Zacchaeus, remember that? Jesus stops, says, come on down, I'm going to your house. And they say, he's going to be a guest of a man who's a sinner. He says, well, the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. Okay, so bottom line, these grumbling illusions, the echoes of the Old Testament, to murmur against Jesus, to grumble against what Jesus is doing, is to murmur against God. They, these leaders, are in danger just like the Israelites in the, in the wilderness. This is what God is like. He's gracious. So, in response, Jesus tells them a parable. It says singular, parable, so it's kind of a threefold parable, three-part um, parabolic unit. We're going to look at the first two this week, and then the climactic third part next week. Um, one of the most famous and, and favorite passages, maybe, of many of you. So, the seeking, finding, rejoicing God. Look at verses 3 to 7, the first um, way that he... Um, responds to these leaders. So Jesus told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? Okay, sheep are not dogs. They're not horses. They're not going to find their way back home. So this shepherd does the necessary and the obvious thing. He goes searching for the lost one. Okay, and the Pharisees, even though they weren't literal shepherds, they know this. That's why it's, it's a duh question, which is a really good way of drawing the Pharisees in and then pricking them in their heart because they can't but respond with nobody. Nobody would neglect the sheep that was lost. Okay, this might sound a little bit crazy, irresponsible on the face of it. Maybe you have this question, leaving 99 in the open pasture? Um, is that kind of self-defeating? Like you're going to be racing after sheep like for the rest of your life if you do this. Well, that audience would know with a flock that large, they would know, they would assume that the shepherd left the 99 with other shepherds. Try not to draw attention from the shepherd where the focus is, okay? So, obvious course of action. The scribes and Pharisees would know that this is, is obvious. Which of you? Answer, none. Nobody would do that. Nobody would fail to do that. Nobody would neglect to do that. And this shepherd is going to search until he finds it. You see it there in verse 4? So there's the determination of the shepherd is in focus. And then what does he do when he finds it? He lays it on his shoulders because oftentimes sheep, when they are lost, they would just lie down and refuse to move. Okay, they just, they're weak, they freak out, and they just lie down there. So he puts it on his shoulders also. It's a long walk back probably. And he's rejoicing the shepherd. 
He comes home. He calls everybody together, friends and neighbors, and says, rejoice with me, for I found my, lost, my sheep that was lost. And so the, look at what's in focus, the determination of the shepherd and the joy of the shepherd is in focus. The focus isn't as much on the sheep, it's on the character of the shepherd. The joy of the shepherd, and he's sharing that joy. He wants other people to share in that joy. So application, first, verse 7, Jesus applies it immediately. I tell you, in the same way, just like that scene, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. See, you guys are concerned that I'm not concerned about the law. You're judging me that I'm not upholding the character of God. No, let me tell you what heaven is like. You should know this. There's more joy in heaven, character of God, over one lost sinner repenting and coming home than over 99 self-righteous ones who don't think they need any repentance. There's no joy. There is no joy in heaven over self-righteousness. <laughs> okay? So do we have ears to hear this? A guy named Garland connects some dots here. Listen to this. Both John, the Baptist, and Jesus demand repentance of everyone. And no one should presume to be exempt from this demand. In the context, the scribes and Pharisees need to repent of their grumbling and refusal to accept God's acceptance of sinners, lest they go the way of the grumbling wilderness generation. And not only that, but Jesus is directly challenging, or indirectly at least, these shepherds, these quote-unquote shepherds of Israel. Neil read it in Ezekiel 34. They were supposed to be looking out for the strays and the lost rather than cutting themselves off from them for the sake of some kind of, you know, man-made tradition purity, okay? They're justifying their sanctimoniousness. Which of you wouldn't do this? Well, none. Then why aren't you doing this? Okay, so we should hear the echoes of Ezekiel 34. You probably saw just how powerful that passage is in Ezekiel 34 as Neil read it. And you see that God's going to come and shepherd. You know what? You've all failed. I'm going to come and seek my sheep. And here he is, Jesus, God, the God-man, God in the flesh, seeking the lost. Okay? So it's obvious, you leaders, all that you would do for a lost sheep, but you won't do this for a lost soul? You value a lost sheep more than you do a soul? It's kind of like Jonah. So they grumble when they should be rejoicing. They should be rejoicing that lost sheep are being found. I mean, these Pharisees should be joining Jesus at the table, excitedly anticipating what could happen. Oh, there's another one. Yes, let's go get more and bring them to Jesus. Garland writes again. He says, the problem is that the Pharisees looked down on sinners while Jesus looked for them. Then he writes, the great physician did not, listen to this, the, the, the order is so important. He says, the great physician did not set up office hours to consult with the sick only after they had been cured. He sought out the sick. How, how do we relate to people that have like that bad reputation? What what do you do when you come across a sinner? And I mean it kind of in the way they do, like really a sinner. What's your first impulse? Is it judgmental and critical? Like tisk tisk? 
Or, or do you see, you know what? Sometimes the people that look the farthest away are actually the closest to the kingdom. And you have pity. And you want to care and reach out for these people. Or personally, maybe somebody in here, do you think that Christianity is about getting your act together so God will accept you? That is not the gospel. You don't have to get cleaned up to take a bath. Okay, Jesus does that. That's what God's like. He's the seeking, finding, rejoicing when he finds God. And in case we didn't get it the first time, he gives us a second illustration to make the same point. He's a seeking, finding, rejoicing God. Look at the same pattern, verses 8 to 10. What woman, if she has 10 silver coins, loses one, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully until she finds it? When she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There's a couple things here that, just given the, the kind of historical, cultural distance, this seems a little weird to us. Okay, these are drachma. It's like a day's wages. So for a poor peasant woman, 10 of those is a big deal. So if she loses one, that's a big deal. Well, what in the world do you need to light a lamp for? Okay. Little homes in in Jesus' day made much differently than ours, obviously before electric light. Okay. This woman's floor would have been made most likely from uncut stones, you know, placed on the floor. So therefore, they would obviously be cracks between the stones. She could not call Anderson windows when her house was being built. It would not be unusual for her to have no windows. But if she did have a window or maybe a couple windows, they would be small and they would be high up on the wall. And so even in the middle of the day, she's going to need to light a little lamp. And it's not like, you know, this is like a little, you've seen those little, like the oil with the little handle and little wick and doesn't even give off that much light. But okay, so light the lamp, get down there i got to find this coin. This is a big deal. It's a lot of my well-being wrapped up in these 10 little coins. So she's a seeker. Coin doesn't come bouncing up into her lap. She is the seeker. She's the finder. And then when she finds, she calls others to share her joy. And the joy of heaven over one sinner who repents is repeated. And so it's emphasized. you got to believe this. This is the character of God. So bottom line, God gets really happy about sinners repenting. Really. So because he gets really happy about sinners repenting, God goes after sinners. He seeks sinners. Remember John 4? An hour is coming, Jesus said, and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers which means Jesus wanted to spend time with and reach out to sinners. Who is he talking to in John 4? You know, she wasn't like the buttoned up, keep the nose. This is a sinful woman, okay? Listen to Garland again. I love the way that he gets the order right here. This is the gospel order. Divine love goes out to seek the sinner before he repents or she repents. Sheep and coins do not repent for getting lost. Salvation and repentance have now changed places. For Jesus' audience of Pharisees, repentance is the first thing, the condition which affords the sinner the hope of grace. It is now the case that repentance comes 
by means of grace. For Jesus, grace is the first thing, and repentance comes as a response to grace. So if we get this, if the Pharisees, the Pharisees obviously didn't get this, they should have. What woman? This is obvious. They should have got it. But if you and I get this, we are going to be really happy about the fact that God is a seeking, finding, rejoicing God, and we will want to follow Jesus seeking and saving the lost. I'm going to unpack that now as we close with some application, okay? So, rejoice, point in, in the bulletin if you're using that little outline, rejoice and follow the finder. Okay, what is God like? We started out with this thought. What's his disposition towards sinners? Does he hate sin? Absolutely. Is he holy and righteous and just? Absolutely. Does he ever sweep it under the rug? Never. Okay, he doesn't wink at it. He's not grandfather in the sky. But what is his disposition towards sinners? God demonstrates his love. God so loved the world. What's his disposition toward repentant sinners? He rejoices over them. Really? Yeah. Over you. If you are a repentant sinner, do you know that there was a party in heaven that day? He, he rejoiced over that. Do you believe that? Do you, have you ever actually internalized that? Listen carefully to these two verses. Isaiah 62, 4. Because we need to let the Bible inform our view of God rather than creating him in our own image or whatever. And yes, sometimes our culture, Christian culture even, has a very sentimental view of God, kind of a cheesy, thin, you know, cotton candy view of God. But you can actually overswing and have this like austere, you, you can't even accept the love of God. That's dangerous. View him as a hard man. So listen carefully to these verses. Okay, if, this is, if you're in Christ, this is, this is for you. This is God speaking to you. You shall no more be termed forsaken. This is Isaiah 62. Your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, this is your name, my delight is in her. And your land shall be called married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And then Zephaniah 3. On that day it shall be said, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Okay, so we're going to share in the Lord's Supper in just a moment. And this table is a celebration of the seeking, finding shepherd that laid down his life for his sheep. And you know what? You and I, we should come to this table. We should realize that this is actually, you know, if, if we had you over, you'd be coming to our table. When we come here, you realize we're actually coming to, we say it, the Lord's table, but sometimes we, no, 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 this is like his table. So come to the table. Let me feed you. Let me host a celebration. Okay? So we're coming to his table and I don't know, if we really are in touch with the rebels that we are, if we're in touch with the sinners that we are, you and I ought to look around and just, here we are at the Lord's table. 
We could just ask each other, Neil, what in the world are you doing here? And you could ask me, how did you get here? What are you doing here? Because I was straying like a lost sheep. I mean, any of us, to really be honest with ourselves and, and, and kind of verbalize where we've been, what we've done, what we've thought, what we've felt, oh my goodness, so shameful, so ugly. What in the world are we doing here sitting down at this table? I was so lost, and Jesus came to seek and save, praise God, the lost, and he sought me out, and he sought you out, and he found me, and he found you, and he rescued us from darkness, and he transferred us to his marvelous light. Listen to the logic of Colossians 1, 12 to 14. It's a prayer, but we should... He's praying it so that, Paul's praying this, so that the Colossians would joyously give thanks to the Father who has qualified them to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. How did he do that? He qualified them by rescuing them. (laughs) What's your qualification for being here? Oh, I, I, I was rescued. Full stop. What are you going to do? List out your... Righteous deeds, what are you going to do? Uh, well, you know, I've, I've, I'm really pretty faithful in church attendance and I'm serving, you know. That, that, like, give me a break. He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. That's why we're qualified. So how appropriate that we would celebrate communion this morning. If you are in Christ, you are welcome to this table, not because I'm telling you this, but because The finder came and got you and brought you to his table. That's something to celebrate. You are welcome because he's telling you you're welcome. Even if you've been really straying this week, this is why the regularity of the Lord's table is such a blessing because we are all sheep who go astray so easily. And sometimes we just like despair of how prone we are to wander and we just think he barely puts up with me. We actually need to rehearse the gospel and believe it regularly so that the joy of the Lord will be our strength. Doesn't mean so that we can just live however the heck we want. No. It's what renews us. So he sought us out. He opened our eyes to our lostness. He dug out the, the just stuff we had stuck in our ears so that we could hear his saving grace, his compelling call to come. He found us, he welcomed us to his table, and all of heaven <laughs> celebrated our repentance that was by his grace, repentance from deadness and lostness, and we trusted in Jesus. Okay, so we get to remember and celebrate that grace month by month at this table. Okay? We need to celebrate this grace. We need to do it regularly because there's a lot in our own lives to mourn each week. We are still prone to wander. We are slow to learn. We see so much around us that's discouraging. We see so much within us that's discouraging. Okay, we need to be brought back to the table, to the table of celebration, the table of joy. We need to hear the song of heaven again. That joyful song, we need to hear that again and and be renewed. I once was lost, now I'm found. Yes, amazing grace has been my song, and it will be till I die. I really need, you know, I couldn't hear. I couldn't hear the, the joyful song this past week because of my own sin or because of all the stuff around me that was just drowning it out. 
thank you, Lord, for... You even went and grabbed me this week and you brought me back and here I am at your table for no reason in myself and I needed to hear the song of heaven again. I needed to know that you are this kind of God. Thank you, Jesus, for this reminder. I needed it. Thank you for seeking and rescuing me. Everything starts to just, maybe your circumstance hasn't changed right now, but maybe your perspective on it completely changes now because the joy of the Lord is now your strength. Thank you for restoring to me the joy of my salvation. It's so easily lost. Thank you, Jesus, for your joyful celebration of repentant sinners. I can't believe you're welcoming welcoming me to your table. Yes, and then the joy of the Lord starts to be our strength, and then we go out in the strength of the joy of the Lord, and then you and I go, And we rub sinners with all kinds of despicable people that are just like we were and continue to be. And rather than tisk tisk, we start welcoming them to our table. And some of those sinners are going to come because of you being the hands and feet and extending that hospitality of Jesus. They're going to come to this table. So we need to feed on the joyful, sovereign grace that fills us up with a joyful, durable thanksgiving, and it's going to empower us for joyful, hospitable grace to those lost sinners just like us that otherwise would disgust and irritate us. So found sinner... (laughs) All of us, let's rejoice this morning in our seeking, finding, rejoicing, and sharing the joy Savior. And then let's go out in the strength of the joy of the Lord and seek the lost with him for the joy that's set before us. Let's pray. God, you are such a good and great and gracious, merciful, patient, pursuing, steadfast, stubborn love, seeking, finding God. And we thank you and pray that you would strengthen us with your gracious joy. In Jesus' name, amen.